We think of performance reviews as cyclical. We think of one-on-ones as the in-between time to like address big stuff. But I think oftentimes as managers, and I certainly made this mistake early, it's actually the small stuff that you need to manage because that becomes the big stuff. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. Today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Joanna Lord. She's had an extensive leadership career spanning many companies. Today, she is an executive in residence at Reforge, one of my favorite programs out there. And prior to that, she was the CMO at Skyscanner, where she helped scale the company to over 100 million users a month. Before that, she was the CMO at ClassPass. And prior to that, worked in leadership functions at a variety of different companies, including TripAdvisor and Moz. This conversation was definitely jam-packed, full of insights, and I'm very excited for all of you to hear everything that Joanna had to share. And before we dive in, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everybody who's been giving us five-star reviews. We really, really appreciate it. And if you haven't done it yet, it really, really helps promote the show. So thank you so much for taking a moment to do that right now. And of course, if you want to join the Super Managers Slack community and chat with other super managers and listeners of the show, please send us a note to supermanagers at fellow.app and we will be sure to let you in. And with that said, and without further ado, here's Joanna Lord on this episode of the Super Managers Podcast. Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, super excited to do this. Uh, you and I were just chatting. I'm a huge fan of Reforge. You're currently in EIR there. You were the CMO at Skyscanner. Uh, you were at ClassPass and a bunch of other companies too. And uh, so lots of things that we're going to dive into today. The thing that we like to do on the show is start with the mistakes though. So <laughs> if <it>. you could <laughs> rewind back to when you first started to manage or lead a team, do you remember what some of those very early mistakes were for you? I love that you jump right in. Let's get to let's get to the good stuff. I mean, yes, I do remember because they sit with me very heavy even years later. I think my first management role was probably at this point almost 16, 17 years ago. And I made what I believe is probably now in hindsight, almost every possible mistake. It's 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 actually impressive how many mistakes I made in, in my first role. One that really stands out, and I think about this a lot when I'm, you know, thinking of bringing on a first-time manager or even now, because like obviously leadership's a lifetime journey, is I tried to do it all myself. Like I, it was my first role. I didn't want anyone to know I was not qualified because I was not qualified. I didn't want anyone to know what I didn't know. And so I didn't ask, I didn't lean on my manager for support. I didn't, you know, go to the people team for support. And weirdly, even though I'm a growth marketer at heart, I didn't like apply the growth mindset. I didn't even go looking for best practices or 
So I think when a lot of my early mistakes, some very, I can talk through some examples, but a lot of those mistakes were pretty avoidable if I had just kind of raised my hand and said, this is my first time managing, like any tips, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you remember what led you to draw that conclusion or how did you end up getting to that realization? Yeah, I was very fortunate um, early on. So I was at a company called SEO Moz at the time, which is now Moz, one of the early pioneers in SEO. I had a remarkable CEO, Rand Fishkin, like very early in SEO. Um, and he was smart enough to bring in executive coaching for a lot of the leadership team. And, you know, I like to say I was identified as someone who could use that help, <laughs> which I totally appreciate now. And when I had sat down with that executive coach who has been pretty pivotal in my career as a manager and leader, she helped me see it. You know, she was just like, and I think she, what her exact kind of push was, why didn't we would talk to examples of like, maybe I was in a confrontation with one of my direct reports where I didn't know how to give good feedback or, you know, maybe one of them was underperforming in an area. And I'd heard that from another team. And I, and she would just be like, well, why haven't you asked for help? And like, I think we really talked about that. And my main reason is, as, and I think this is really common, and it's like many first-time managers are exceptional ICs and you get all this great feedback and you're like, you're feeling really good. And then you get promoted and you, you don't want to underperform. It's like the biggest fear you have is letting someone down. And, you know, so I think she helped me see it. And I, I think it often takes an external perspective reflecting back to you you know, you could just ask for help. Like there's no shame in that game. And I think that was pretty pivotal for me. Yeah, that's super interesting. And on the executive coach thing, so at at the various companies that you've worked at, how does that work? I know, for example, there's some companies like Shopify, for example, that very early on, they brought in executive coaches that were full-time employees at the company. What's your view on that for larger companies? Should there be a budget for it or should you know, executive coaches be on staff or what are your thoughts? Well, I've seen all the flavors. And I think, you know, like you said, when I was at Skyscanner, we had full-time employees. I had a full-time executive coach available to the exec team. I used that resource plenty, you know, in a plentiful way. Um, At Moz, it was hired episodically, right? Like maybe you would have them for three to six months. I've also spent my own money on it. And at times in my life when I didn't have a lot of money and there's formal executive coaching. There's kind of more like mentorship that you really invest in. So my strong thesis on this is probably the biggest difference between great managers and leaders and good ones is whether or not they are proactively and consistently investing and in getting better at it. And it's not rocket science, but it is, it's an easy thing to fall to the bottom of your to-do list. It's like the meeting you cancel is the one that about you becoming a better manager and leader because you have so much other thing, so many other things to do. So I believe the more a company can do, the more they set aside budget to invest in their management levels, you feel it everywhere. And so, um, you know, I've talked uh, companies I join or companies I advise and consult with. This is always an area that comes up and I always advise in that direction. Yeah, super interesting. And uh, fun fact. So I had an executive coach and uh, actually invited him on the show. So we did did an interview that way. And talked about some of the things I learned uh, just to give the audience like a flavor of that if they haven't done that before. But one of the questions that I did want to talk to you about is emotional intelligence in in the workplace. And uh, it it sounds like you've done a lot of training in that area. Maybe you can talk to us about like, what does that mean to you? And what can you advise others about developing 
if it's possible. Yeah, I mean, so it is possible. And I think that's probably one of the most common misconceptions about EQ. Everyone has a baseline. So one, if we talk EQ for those that are listening, like emotional intelligence, most people think of it as a singular thing, which is like, how self-aware am I? Do I know myself? And that is a very important important part, but it's one of the four quadrants. It's actually self-awareness. Like, can I, how do, do I know how I feel? Can I like recognize that? Self-management, like how do I manage the way I'm feeling? Like, how do I respond in a room? Can I control my angst, my anxieties? You know, can I, um, if I'm really excited, like too excited, how do I control that? And then there's social awareness, right? How aware it is basically, can you read the room? And then there's social management, right? And how can you control a room? How can you maneuver a room? And so I say all that because I, I think it is so important. I think the EQ is for everyone, not just managers and leaders, but there's work to do against it. And a lot of it comes down to that first quadrant, which is like, I think what, what you were kind of getting at with your question, which is everyone has a predisposed baseline for how self-aware they are. Some people, and I'll give you an example, like to get really candid, I've had people on my team that are drastically underperforming. And when you talk to them, they're like, I'm doing great. I'm just knocking it out of the park. Look at all this great stuff I'm doing. And I've seen the exact opposite where people are crushing it. And every time you talk to them, they're incredibly low confidence. All they see is what they're doing wrong. And that tends to signal that they have work to do on self-awareness. There are things you can do, but most of it is in the softer side of things. And it's intimidating where it's things like therapy, meditation, mentorship, like healthy dialogues and discussions with your managers, really candid feedback discussions, because what really helps someone get better at self-awareness is figuring out what makes you tick. What are your triggers? What are you afraid of? And a lot of that is you probably know, Aiden, like go way back to like when you were 15 or like your first job at 22 or a time you were fired that you couldn't, that you thought you were over, but you never shook. And so I think self-awareness is a a massive advantage in leadership, but I think it's hard work. Yeah. I mean, this concept of some people thinking that they're doing much better than they are and other people thinking that they're doing much worse than they are. This is to some extent human nature and people are just wired differently. Yeah. I am curious if you were to give us some tactical tips on how to deal with each, if you had, and we can talk about both scenarios, how do you deal with this on your team? Yeah, love it. I'll give some very tactile examples, like skills I've learned over the years. So probably if someone is, I'll start with the positive, if they are over, uh, they are overqualified and they are constantly undercutting themselves. And this is a very challenging thing for a manager because you also need people as as they uh, become more senior, as they take on more projects, as they strengthen and kind of build out their mandate, you need them to demonstrate confidence. And internally, they need to be seen as an ambassador of those projects or as an advocate And if they're constantly questioning their ability and constantly in fear that they're underperforming, it will come through, uh, which erodes the trust cross-functionally, like all the things we know. So probably the number one thing I have them do, and I actually did take this from uh, training in the past, is called the, is that 100% true exercise? I don't know if you've ever done it. No, what is it? Yeah, so if I say to someone who I think is doing really well at something, but they're just constantly showing kind of lack of confidence or inability to be self-reflective of their performance. And I say, write down what you are most afraid of on this project. And they will always start with some crazy sentence. Like, if I take on this big project you're asking me to, and everyone at the company will see how not trained I am at the skill, it will be incredibly embarrassing. 
I will be performance managed out, fired, and everyone in my life will know that I'm not any good. Like it will be some crazy big sentence, this narrative they've built. And you go, okay, is that 100% true? Like if you didn't do well at this fair. So let's come up with a more true sentence. And they'll write something like, if I don't do well, that I'd have to present in front of the team and they would they would think that I'm not good at what I do and that would make me feel embarrassed. Okay, is that 100% true? Will everyone at the company not think you're good at what you do? If this? So you go through this exercise till you get to the 100% true statement. And that's usually something like, I'm afraid I'm not good enough to do this job or something very like about them, about their self-awareness. Like I was told once that I might not be good at this one thing. I think I am, but I'm afraid to take on this project or I care too much what you think about me. It's something that you can actually work off of. So that's an example. It's called the 100% true. It usually takes like eight to 10 sentences, but you get to the one that they're most scared of. And then you can say to them, is that so bad? So, you know, the project doesn't go well. And we realize there's an area you need to develop. Is that so bad? So that's one direction. If I flip it, if it's helpful, that this one's much easier. If they're underperforming, but they think they're overperforming, I tend to do the, let me put your job description in front of you. Let's walk through line by line and let's score on a one to 10. You score on one to 10 and I'll score on one to 10 on how good we, we think it's going. And there's, it's usually like, I call it football fields apart. They're, they think they're an eight out of 10. I show them you're a three out of 10. It's an honest way. It's a third, it's triangulation. And I can point to it and say like, how do you feel about these differences in numbers, right? And we can start to talk as humans, which is what we really need to do. And it doesn't become a justification of the eight of the three. It becomes a reality that we are five football fields apart. So those are some examples and tactics, but I think they tend to help you build self-awareness and realize there might be another narrative you have to consider. This is super interesting. So talking about the 100% true one, so you would roll out that tool in your toolkit if someone is starting, say you want them to do something, a bigger project, and you're noticing a lack of confidence. And rather than just saying like, hey, don't worry, you're great, it'll be great, just do it. Uh, which you can also do. Maybe you also do that. You can also do but, it. but if it persists, then you take this tool. Really cool tool, by the way. And on the job description one, that's super interesting. I think that sometimes maybe the way, you know, people do stuff like this when they are like it's performance review time, but you don't wait for that, right? Mm-hmm. Like anytime you feel that there is a discrepancy, you just go to talking about each one of those individual things. And and maybe they are overperforming in some areas, but maybe in some critical areas, they're not. Absolutely. And I think on the second one of like going through and doing it ahead of a performance review, people, it's common, right? Like we think of performance reviews as cyclical. We think of one-on-ones as the in-between time to like address big stuff. But I think oftentimes as managers, and I certainly made this mistake early, it's actually the small stuff that you need to manage because that becomes the big stuff. And we know internally, I'll give you an example, if someone is underperforming in a very specific area, so say I have a lifecycle marketer and they're not being a good partner to product. And I hear that from my product leader. But my lifecycle marketer is like giving me all these reasons why the product partnership isn't working and it doesn't feel like a big deal. You and I both know like once that's gone, that's a really big deal. Like once that that relationship. So when I bring them in and we're talking about it, I'm not waiting for a performance review. I'm not even waiting for a issue. I just say to them, hey, listen, let's talk about partnership, marketing and product. That's, you know, the second paragraph in your JD. Let's walk through what I think is an exceptional partnership and like let's score ourselves on what that looks like. 
And you can start to identify probably something fairly small that you can actually start to improve. Something like detail orientation when you're cross-functionally documenting or working on something. And you, and that's what your PM's feedback is. Like, they're not detail-oriented. We have all these meetings. There's never any follow-ups, blah, blah, blah. So like, I think you the better managers manage the small stuff so they don't become the big stuff. And I think that's what that exercise can give you. If you wait for a performance review, as we all say, you're managing the fallout, not the problem. Do you ever realize in the when someone maybe think that they're overperforming when they're not, do you ever come to the conclusion that maybe they are overperformers, but they just might be in the wrong role? Yeah. Is, is that something that sometimes comes up? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, if we're really getting into it, I think you can be an exceptional performer and still not be the culture fit for that role or for that company. And I think um, the how we do it versus the way we do it, both need to be true. And I think that oftentimes when you get bad feedback at a company, like from either a cross-functional partner, someone on your team, or I'm giving them poor feedback on something I've seen, if they're an overperformer, it's usually on, you know, the how they're doing it. And I think sometimes, and I have had success, you can move them around, right? Because there's the culture at the company, then there's culture on teams, and there's culture on squads. And even I think projects have like this very temporal culture. Like if you need to move really hot and heavy on a P0 project at a company, it can have its own mini culture. So like, I think you can move people around successfully. I think when it's not on the what you do, but on the how you do, it is harder when the feedback is in that realm. And I think as a manager, you have to take that more seriously because this might sound poor, but like at different seasons and stages at companies' lives, you might be able to underperform on the on kind of the what you're doing for a little bit longer, but the how you do one strike, maybe two. But like, you know, we have to manage that even more aggressively because so, the culture is so critical. So I think there's a chance and I've certainly had success, but it's rare. I think the, per- the person also has to be up for it, right? And getting the how you do feedback is harder to hear. It's easier to hear you missed that number. Let's talk about why versus no one wants to work with you on a project. Let's talk about why. Yeah, these are all super difficult to have conversations, but like you said, you need to have them. And I love the phrase of you need to manage the small stuff because that is the stuff that becomes the big stuff. So totally agree with you on that. One of the other areas is, so you know, you've been uh, a CMO multiple times over, manage very large teams, but one of the things that you really care about is getting people to do less. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, when you first walk into a role, managing a large organization, how do you think about things? Like, I get the sense that you maybe get the whole org to do less things, or how do you think about that? I am a later life convert of focus. I like, I say that jokingly because early in my life, I was really proud of the fact that I did so much. And I, again, I'll use quotations, air quotations for those that um, can't see me. My friends, they call me a hummingbird. I run around. I have endless, boundless energy. I've been this way since I was a kid. And I think society tells us the more you do, the more valuable you are. And I think that ripples into work in a very unhealthy way, and especially into tech in a very unhealthy way. We've all, or many of us have probably heard in the book, The One Thing, or we've leveraged a resource like the Eisenhower box about urgent and important and like but we're not good at actually implementing it. Like we love it in theory, but then we just keep adding things on every day. More to do, some of it's productive work, some of it's people work, some of it's us work. And so one of the first things I do when I come into a company is I try to understand, do we know what we're here to do? 
And it sounds really bad, but most companies don't. They don't know their North Star metric. They don't know the input metrics. They don't have an aligned view even sometimes on the time horizon in which things need to be accomplished. So there's some upfront wrestling with the reality that a lot of companies are being steered without clarity, right? But once you have identified what we're here to do and by when, which are the two most important questions, I start to audit, especially in marketing, as because I'm, you know, obviously on top of that function, the work we're doing and what percent of it actually will meaningfully move the needle on those things. And inevitably you find this bucket of work that's high priority, this bucket of work that's low, this bucket of work that's ops and just feels like it needs to get done, this bucket of work that like we all think we should do, but no one knows how to prove that we should. And you just need to start working through those buckets of work and get it down to like two to three things, literally like two to three things. I've written a lot about this. I genuinely believe that time is the thing that kills startups. Like momentum's everything. Opportunity cost is heavy. And if you're not focusing your very limited resources on the right things, that's just a death sentence for startups. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about focus, intentional time spent. Inevitably, you will end up doing less, but better and faster than if you didn't. Hey there, just a quick pause on today's episode to let you know that we'd really appreciate you helping us spread the word about the Super Managers podcast. If you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, dial into your podcast app of choice, whether that's on Apple or Android or Spotify, and just leave us a quick review. Now back to the interview. So if there's someone on your team and they come to you and they're in overwhelm, They've got a lot going on. They're putting out a lot of fires. Like, how might you have a conversation with them to get them to the point where they can be more focused on the most important things? Because prioritization, I mean, it's easy for us to say, but but sometimes it's, you know, it is hard to do. Yep. So, yeah. How would you approach that conversation? I mean, the first thing, and by the way, this is, I feel like most of my days, right? Especially when my, my larger teams, like Skyscanner was a very large team, The majority of my conversation is trying to align my team, individual ICs or managers or managers of managers, and making sure that their to-do list, one, aligns with each other so that everyone can be done and they're not blocked on cross-dependencies, but that that ladders up to what the business needs done. And inevitably, about 60, 70% of the time, people come overwhelmed. And so one, I think this is more of the human side. I think there's just like an acknowledging like that needs to happen before you start to audit and fix the problem where it's like, I want you to know this is not okay and I'm not gonna let it continue. I think a lot of managers skip that step where they're like, well, let's solve it. If you feel overwhelmed, we gotta fix it. And it's like, let's just take a minute and be like, I appreciate how hot you're running, but I want you to know I commit to helping you solve this. Like, this is not how I want you to run. And I think a lot that goes a long way because it gives them a moment of reprieve. Like I'm not going to be fired or scored poorly if I do less. And it's part, it's as much mental, right? Because we take on, we say yes before something hits our to-do list. So like, and then giving them the freedom to say no. Once you get that part aside, I think there's, okay, write down everything that you're doing, everything you're touching. Nothing's too small, nothing's too big. Every, I want to look at your calendar. I want to do an audit. I want to color code the people meetings, the, the weekly regulars versus the project meetings. And I want you to come with the first pass on what you would stop doing if you had full autonomy, what projects on your to-do list. And oftentimes they're the cross-functional projects. They're like, I don't understand why we're working on this. I don't get it, you know? 
And we work through all of those. And oftentimes, honestly, and it's me going to other functions and actually having the hard conversation with my CPO or my head of product. Hey, I hear from someone that like when they're in the meetings on these projects, it's been taking a long time. We've rescoped it three times. The KPIs feel soft. Like, have you, are you in the loop on this? Or, and, you know, I'm not even joking, Aiden, 50%, 60%, maybe the majority of the time, they tell me they're hearing from their team. They shouldn't be doing it. So like, I think there's a lot of work that gets created cross-functionally with the best of intention that could get killed. But I think it's as simple as acknowledging and releasing them of the expectation of speed for speed's sake, that more is more. It's auditing, having them write down everything they're doing, have them audit their calendars so that we really know where the time's going. And then you usually start to think to yourself, okay, what can we actually stop and what hard conversations have to happen to make that possible? It's never just them and me that can make that call. A lot of the really time-consuming things for everyone is cross-functional. So you end, you end up having to really, really approach those hard conversations. Yeah, this is really interesting. And of course, like for first-line managers, this is a thing that they do. But I feel like, you know, this is even more important uh, that the more senior you get within the org, a lot of it is trying to figure out where time is wasted or what things don't need to be done. And these days, everybody's talking about efficiencies. And so, I mean, this is a way that you can get your team to do more by doing less, right? And by doing the more important things. And I think that's super valuable. The thing that I wanted to also ask you about, it's kind of an aside, but what do you think about, like, as you've continue to have more and more senior roles. How do you think about the craft of marketing itself and Mm -hmm. giving yourself time to practice the craft? And do you feel like it's important for leaders to always have something that they can very directly touch? Or do at some point you just have to give that up completely and just become focused on the people and the numbers? I have such strong thoughts on this. I'm like smiling as you ask this question. You have to still touch the work. How else will I ever be able to help my marketers? Like I learned this lesson in a, like I got too far from the work in one of my roles and I became more of a managerial head. Like I was super people oriented and way too focused candidly on my executive board, exec, you know, board management, executive team contributions and one, every time I was asked a question about the details, I didn't know the answer. And, you know, that's not good. But two, as my team came to me and I just couldn't really, truly help solve many problems, I'd have to go like understand all this context I didn't have. I think when I went to ClassPass was the first time I really tried to hone this specific skill, which is how do you know when to delegate? How do you know when to be in the room? How do you help people know why you're in the room? How can you still be an IC, even though you might be a C-level or a VP level? And when and how do you do that? So I deeply believe, and I do. you'll see this at any role I'm in, I try to delegate as much as I can because that's why I hire great people. But I hold on to like the marquee projects, the ones that kind of either map out to the most important metric and or have the most eyes. So like sometimes you have a cross-functional seasonal campaign. It's meant to drive a lot of work, but it also has a lot of people involved, Right. I try to stay very involved in those projects, meaning I'm in the brainstorms, I'm in the ideations, I'm in the scope reviews, I'm in the crit, you know, design crits, right? And I think that people appreciate it because I show up as a marketer. I don't show up as a CMO. I show up as just like someone who has done a lot of marketing. And then the other place that I really still go deep because I think it's super important is in MarTech. And I think that I'll be really candid. If I can show up on projects like CRM integrations or 
ESP decisions or uh, any sort of like really deep project we want to do with personalization that requires front end. If I stay in those details, one, those are costly projects. So like I need to be on top of them. But two, it earns a lot of respect internally from product, from engineering and from marketing because no one wants to do that project. Literally no one. Everyone wishes that one was off their plate and they tend to take nine to 10 to 11 months sometimes. So like I think it's important. Every marketing leader needs to pick which project is the one. But like for me, it's either really high visible projects because they have a really important metric. I mean, if this is a, any sort of marketing activity that we're about to make a change and it could affect our revenue, I'm on it. And if it's a high visibility or, you know, a lot of people are on the project, I'm on it. And then if it's a, a MarTech project, I try to stay close. I think you have to get out of some of the projects. I get looped in on a lot of things. And I think it's important that you you say, actually, she's your person or he's your person for that. And I think it's actually really important you draw that line or you'll you'll never find the time to be a leader. Yeah, this is really excellent. I think it shows a lot of lessons in ways that you never forget the craft and you continue to get better at it. If you were advising someone who's newly become a manager or a leader, and you know, this is always a question to ask, right? Like how much managing is there and how much, you know, how close can I stay to my craft and keep evolving there? Yeah. How would you advise them? I probably would think of it so especially I'll use marketing, but I think it translates to other functions. I think of the journey of a marketer in like this triad, right? You're an IC, you're probably not managing, you're on top of your function. Your T is in that function, right? It's like you're exceptional at that one part of marketing, maybe paid. You're fairly good at other things across the stack. Like, you know what organic means, you know. I think as you become a manager or a leader, so you're kind of in that head of, director of level, you become a T where the function, like maybe it's all of growth or all of brand becomes your depth. But you have to start to think about the other domains, like the entire other domains of marketing. And one of the other domains needs to be management. So like you, you you basically, it's like, I'm deep on growth, but I understand brand, I understand product marketing, and I'm starting to study what it means to be a great manager and leader. I think when you go up one more level, maybe you're a manager of managers, you're a C-level or a VP, your depth is your function, all of marketing. But then I need to be great at product and engineering and finance. And one of mine is leadership, executive leadership. In all of those steps that you make, you have to find rhythms or cadences or ways to stay close to the craft that you are stretching into. And I think that that could be as simple as continuing to be a student of it or involved in it, like digital communities, reading about it, podcasts about it. Like, I think it could be as simple as that. I think it's usually something more proactive. Like I want to go seek out for the first time ever, I'm a growth marketer. I want to go seek out communities of brand leaders and learn from them. How do they work better with growth leaders? How do I work better with them? So I think there tends to be more needed the further up you go, but I just make it clear it's an expectation. And I actually think a lot of leaders don't. I think when someone becomes a first-time manager, they say, you're a manager now. And so they they get rid of the whole T. They're like, okay, well, I'm not a marketer anymore. I'm a manager. And it's like, no, you know, I hired you for a functional role, but now an entire another dimension of that role is being added. But you have to be as proactive about that as you would be anything else you're learning. Yeah, I think it's super excellent. And it's one of those things that is a debate that comes in cycles. And we're definitely in this cycle of you need to be able to get into the weeds. I mean, I just go back to the thing that you ju- you said, which was, you know, if you're asked about something or a project or, you know, the details, if your answer every time is I have to check with my team. Now, sometimes that makes sense. But yeah, if yeah. it's every time, then potentially that's a sign that you've gotten too far away from the craft. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll be really vulnerable on this podcast with you, but I remember once being in a board meeting and being asked a question I should have known the answer to, which was basically, what's the size of your email database again? And I hadn't, I mean, that team was so good, Aiden. My lifecycle team was so good. I hadn't really talked to them about that in a while. Like I was focused on these other things. I prepped this whole board deck and I couldn't answer that to my board. Like it's one of my most significant assets as a consumer marketing company is the size of my audience. So that was embarrassing. One, um, I remember not only did I had to say, I'll have to check with my team, which is embarrassing because we also have a funnel, right? It's like the number one metric that matters. But two, I had, I wrote a note to the board after late that night, just apologizing for not being on top of my metrics. And I, I just think like that was a lesson I needed to learn. And I think, by the way, it's pretty common that we tend as leaders to put our attention on the fires, you know, and I use that lightly, but like if a team's doing really well and you've got all stars and you feel pretty good about it, you redirect your energy to an area that needs it more but you can't get far from that trade. I can't not know what's going on with the size of our database and how are we accelerating our ability to convert those leads and those sorts of things. So just an example, a really honest example of a time I really missed up, you know, I just took a, a big misstep. Yeah, that's a great example. And and thank you for sharing that. I think all of these things, I mean, they solidify our vision of what the role should be and what our career should be about. So I think all of these are super important parts of the growing journey. And uh, on this journey, you've hired a lot of people. And so one thing that I'm super curious about is having hired so many people, seeing when things work really, really well, when there are mismatches and seeing everything in between, what do you now look for in people? When you bring people onto your team, what are the things that you've learned that really make a difference? Yeah, I was actually reflecting on this the other day because like, you get into these roles and you hire teams and I think most managers and leaders are probably most proud of their teams. Like I, the teams I've built are even more beautiful than the mark, work and marketing I've done. But I've hired a lot of people, like thousands of marketers, which means I've been in probably close to, I don't even know, 10,000 interviews, if you think about it over the That's so years. many interviews. Yeah. And I'm very lucky. I've worked with some remarkable people teams, and I feel like they've really helped me hone how I think about hiring. Obviously, early in my career, I made a bunch of mistakes. I just hired people that were best at the thing I needed in the next six months, right? <laughs> like, oh, maybe that's not the right answer. Uh, maybe you have to think longer term and more holistically. So I have a very high bar on candidates. If you ask anyone that's ever worked for me, if you ever read like my recommendations on LinkedIn, my people that have worked for me have managed this. And it's because I believe there's the, again, kind of back to the, but like there's the what you do. And there, I have a multitude of dimensions I've, honed over the years when I'm hiring a growth marketer versus a brand marketer versus a product marketer, how I think about the skill. But I actually think the more important things to look for when you're hiring, if you really want to give yourself the best shot at, at the right hire, there's kind of three things I look at outside of just what they do and how well they do it, which is actually an easier thing to vet these days, I think. The three softer things, I think there's a predisposition I look for. Are they naturally above the line? at the line or below the line, right? And sometimes it's called optimism or pessimism. I work in high growth tech. If you're a pessimist, we're gonna have a hard time. I ensure you, teams are not gonna wanna work with you. People love pragmatists. Sometimes I love a good curmudgeon, but like for the majority of the time, you need someone who's like bringing positivity to hard problems, like believing they can be solved. So predisposition is an area I bet for. Sorry, on the predisposition point, that sounds super interesting to me. How do you tease that out? How do you find that out during an interview process? 
I think there's a lot of questions you can ask for this, but I actually think I'm fairly candid in this question where I kind of say to someone, listen, can you give me an example of a time you approached a hard pro- like a hard problem, you sat down with a team and a hard problem was put in front of you? What voice in the room were you? And they're really, because people are proud of this. They're either, I'm the person who brings a super rational, pragmatic, should we, you know, is this the right problem we should be on? Is it, if it's too hard of a problem, is this the right use of our resources? You can start to vet that they might be a little bit closer to either neutral or pessimist. If they're like, I like to understand why, you know, this problem seems really interesting. I want to understand all the ways we can solve it. I want to hear everyone else's voice in the room. Then we can evaluate what's the right way to tackle it. They are already assuming there's a way to solve it, right? So I think people are proud of, and it's not a bad or good. I just think in high growth companies, a predisposition of optimism or at least above neutral tends to help. Like I always say, are you going to be, are you going to bring an energy into the room that brings us closer to a solution or further from it? And that's kind of a question that helps you get there. Such a good question. I'm definitely etching that into my memory from now until <laughs> forever. That is a very good question. Okay, so predisposition, what was number two? So the second is ego. Um, I think this is probably easier to vet for when you kind of ask someone about what they're most proud of. You know, do they use, because again, you're looking for someone who's humble, but not just humble, someone who genuinely believes that more people together working on something is superior than one person working on something, right? Like that there's a, a benefit to multiple voices and multiple contributions. And the question I simply ask there is, you know, what are you most proud of? And you're just looking for language. You're looking for how they describe it. Is it a lot of like, I'm most proud of the work I did on X? Is it the, I'm actually really proud of this campaign that my team did X, Y, Z in? I watched so-and-so shine in that project or like we discovered a whole new way of doing something. So you're looking for their predisposition on how they see the world uh, as part of a team or as an individual. Sometimes you want an individual mindset, like some hires you do. And I'll talk about that in a sec, but like, I think for the majority of the time, and again, high growth tech companies, you really want a humble attitude and someone who just deeply believes like they have more to learn. They have more to learn. They're only one voice. So that tends to be the second dimension. And then the third is mindset, right? And I think we've heard and talked a lot about this in tech, but I'm always vetting for growth or fixed mindset. This is easier to vet for than, well, it's it's harder in some roles and easier in others. So I think I manage a lot of creative teams and I think sometimes they have a fixed mindset, right? Like there's there are superior, better ways to do things and they're not necessarily open to a new way of doing things because they've been taught a certain way. And so you really have to unpick with this one is it that they believe there's more to learn and they always want to learn it? Or do they believe they've like learned something really well and they want to bring it to your company? Like you want to make sure you don't misrepresent fixed mindset. But the, those are the three things I'm looking for. How are they going to show up? And that's really the thing. I don't, work gets easier if people show up well and it's contagious, right? If someone shows up and they're like, let's solve this problem, we can do it. You probably can solve the problem. And so those are the things that are I try to vet for because they're the, they're the gotchas when you make a hire. Yeah, that's super well explained, but also it just shows, you know, how deeply you've thought about this stuff. This is not something that you're coming up with on the fly. This is like the combination, the cumulative knowledge and experience of, like you said, that hiring thousands of people. So super valuable. The 
One phrase I heard from another guest we had on the show was, it was funny the way that he said it. It was, I only work with people who have a bounce in their step as they're mm-hmm. walking into the building. <laughs> and yeah. so I thought that was, that was awesome. So on the last one, I know mindset, again, is probably one of the things that people talk about more, but I am curious, how do you evaluate that in an interview setting? Yeah, I mean, I think for mindset, you can kind of ask softer questions around things like, what do you do with your free time? And oftentimes they'll be like, and this is just one signal, but if they're doing hobbies that are expanding their mind, like, oh, I'm actually learning a new language right now, or um, I'm trying a whole new hobby and, you know, or uh, I recently got into baking bread because one of my friends said it's interesting. Like, so I think there's a where they spend their time outside of work that usually can show you a signal, one of many signals. I think the second thing is just you ask them, what's the last thing you learned and what did, and how did you learn it? And if they really struggle with that question, it doesn't mean they are always a fixed mindset, but it usually means it. Like someone could listen to a new podcast and tell me that they learned something off that podcast. That shows growth mindset. They took the initiative to listen to a podcast. So I think there's like those softer questions. I, again, Aiden, I like to ask the obvious question, hey, you know, in the world of growth mindset or fixed mindset, like where have you found yourself on that spectrum? Because I think a lot of people, when they say, they'll they'll almost always say, oh, I'm, I believe in a growth mindset. Well, give me some examples of that. It's like, they go blank. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, people, people will tell you in interviews their best answer. And I think asking the obvious question isn't always the wrong question to ask, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And asking for the examples is where you really, really start to dig in. Joanna, this has been an awesome interview. We've talked about so many different topics, started with uh, EQ. I loved your 100% true test. That is awesome. And and also the job description and voting against that, managing the small stuff because that will become the big stuff. I love the discussion we had around focusing on your craft and never losing focus of what it is that you're there to do. Yeah. And your hiring rubric is awesome. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people will take notes. I need to get it published somewhere. Yeah, it does need to get published. I'm glad that you were able to share that. Lots of really, really good tips there. The question of what voice in the room were you? That's such a brilliant question. It's so awesome. <laughs> so thank you for sharing all of that. The Final question that we always like to end on with our guests is for all the managers and leaders constantly looking to get better at their craft, are there any final tips, tricks, or words of wisdom that you would leave them with? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, call me, we'll chat. It's such a hard journey. Like I really, I genuinely empathize and I still remember how hard those first couple roles can be. And sometimes even today, what how hard some days can be as a leader. I guess my best advice is, get to know yourself. And I said a little bit earlier, but how you are as a leader is basically who you are as a human. And if you don't know what you're scared of, you don't know what makes you tick or what you're motivated by, if you can't speak to your strengths and your weaknesses, if you can't respect yourself, but also know what you don't know, like if you don't do that work, it will be very hard to show up and help others do that work. And when I say very hard, absolutely impossible. So I think my tip is get, you know, whatever that personal work is, like getting to know who you are and why you love what you love. I'd start that journey. Therapy, meditation, coaching, mentorship, having healthy friends and talking about these things. I'd just start that journey because I really believe that like great leaders just can connect with their teams on a very human level. And that's hard to do if you haven't done that work. That's great advice and a great place to end it. Joanna, thanks so much for doing this. 
Thank you, Aiden. This was great. Um, And, you know, I just really appreciate you having me. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app slash supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.